Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. COVID-19 is spreading faster than a bullet train, so says New York's Governor Andrew Cuomo. The city now has over 25,000 confirmed cases of the disease, and the pattern is similar across the world. Amid this surge in the number of cases in hospital are the many people with milder symptoms battling the illness in their homes. Meanwhile, researchers are racing to better understand the virus and provide life-saving care. Hello, I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist, and you're listening to Babbage on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on technology and science. Coming up on today's show, could losing your sense of smell mean you've contracted COVID-19? There's been a huge increase in the number of patients who are presenting to ENT surgeons, raising incidents of COVID-19 with anosmia. And the manufacturers that are teaming up to respond to the demand for ventilators. They're also going to 24-hour operations, shifting people out of the office onto the production floor and doing everything they can. Plus, people are being required to stay at home. How is this change in daily habits affecting the environment? People are flying less, they're not commuting to work, and as a result of that, we're seeing a drop in air pollutants and carbon emissions. Scientists are scrambling to learn more about COVID-19 and its symptoms in the hope that this can help staunch the spread of the disease. Now some researchers think the best course of action might be to follow their nose. ENT UK is a professional body representing ear, nose, and throat practitioners. Along with the British Rhinological Society, they think there may be a link between COVID-19 and anosmia. Anosmia is complete loss of smell. And hyposmia. And hyposmia is reduction in sense of smell. Claire Hopkins is a professor of rhinology and an ENT doctor. She's also the president of the British Rhinological Society. Claire, please explain the link that has been uncovered. We know that post-viral anosmia or loss of sense of smell is actually relatively common with viruses that cause the common cold. And coronavirus has previously been described and is thought to cause about 10% of post-viral anosmia. We therefore weren't really surprised when we started to hear reports of patients with COVID-19 reporting anosmia. But what has been surprising and what we're talking about at the moment is the number of young, healthy people who are presenting with anosmia without really any other symptoms. And there's been a huge increase in the number of patients who are presenting to ENT surgeons, certainly in the last two to three weeks, raising incidents of COVID-19 with anosmia. And what share of patients exhibit this without showing symptoms? The difficulty is that we don't know. We're not testing across whole populations at the moment. And testing for COVID-19 is quite restricted due to limiting in capacity. So we can't give any feel for how many patients with COVID-19 might present with anosmia. What we know in the small number of series that have been made publicly available at the moment, for example, there's a study in Germany 
where patients who have tested positive, about two in three patients report anosmia. We can't get a feel for how many patients there are out there with anosmia who haven't yet been tested. But certainly myself and ENT surgeons all around the world have reported really dramatic increase in the number of patients. So, for example, I would typically see about one patient a month with anosmia of recent onset without any other obvious cause. But in the last week, I saw nine patients, which is a really significant rise. Do you know why the infection would cause a loss of smell? We know that coronavirus attacks the sensitive area at the top of the nose, which detects odours the neuroepithelium of the olfactory cleft. It can pass into the olfactory bulb, which sits intracranially and causes damage. You had said that it actually damages the nerve endings, though. So why would we see that the sense of smell would come back? The mechanism for sense of smell does have the ability to recover. And it's an area of research looking at whether you can use olfactory fibres, for example, for spinal cord regeneration after injury. And how significant is the loss of smell? Is it a simple dulling of the senses, or would one struggle to smell something potent like vinegar or petrol? So the patients who have reported symptoms have really presented with quite severe loss, so what we would call anosmia. They've gone from having a normal sense of smell to really smelling nothing at all within about 24 hours, or at least in the majority of cases. So, for example, one patient reported that she couldn't smell her son's dirty nappy, and another reported that he was standing at the petrol pump and didn't realise it had overflowed because he couldn't smell the petrol. So it does seem to be quite severe at onset. The good news is that it does seem to be recovering fairly quickly, so patients are getting some sense of smell come back. And why does this affect only some but not all of the people who are infected with the coronavirus? We haven't yet had the opportunity to better understand why there's such a range of severity in patients. We understand that patients with more comorbidity or older age get more severe infections, for example, but equally we're seeing patients who are young, fit and healthy with very severe infections. And we're seeing likely the same variation in terms of the impact on sense of smell. We do know that there's genetic variation in our ability to smell. Some patients, for example, have a heightened sense of smell compared to others. And it's described also different variations in taste sensation. So it's possible that this is linked to the susceptibility. But at the moment, we don't know why we're seeing such variation. How about a predictor of the degree to which the person who experiences this is infectious to others? We haven't yet studied that. One of the key things about this research that we're talking about, we haven't yet had the ability to substantiate it because at the moment, the vast majority of patients we're seeing don't meet the criteria for testing. I've heard of the first patient this morning who's just contacted me, who's actually a hospital colleague who presented with loss of sense of smell only, and that prompted him to seek testing. And he has just tested positive. So we know that we're starting to see patients who are testing positive, but we're not able yet to test the degree of viral load that they exhibit. Now, might there be something beneficial about this? And what I'm thinking of is, can the symptom of loss of smell be a suitable proxy test for COVID-19? So the reason that we put out the press statement from ENT UK was exactly that we thought it might have some value. First of all, we know that there are very high rates of infection in ENT colleagues. And I realised that a lot of us would be seeing these patients with loss of sense of smell because they weren't being picked up by the screening questions put out by hospitals looking for fever, cough and other symptoms that might alert us to the fact a patient had COVID-19. So my first instinct was to protect colleagues from exposure to risk. The second issue is that while we're relying on voluntary social distancing rather than a more enforced lockdown that we're moving to at the moment, 
it wasn't being used as one of the triggers to self-isolate. And my hope was that we might be able to identify what we call the silent spreaders. There are estimates from Wuhan that as many as 90% of patients have an almost asymptomatic course. And the problem with that is they continue about normal life, contact, using public transport, without knowing they're at risk of infecting other people. So my hope was that we could use this as a trigger to encourage people to self-isolate. Okay. So how might your research help staunch the spread of COVID-19? So at the moment, we have limited capacity to test patients. And until this becomes more widely available, we want to target testing to those who are most at risk. And this could be a means to do that. We might use it as a trigger to identify infected healthcare workers. One of my colleagues in Italy noted that while working on the front line, about about half of his colleagues, including himself, lost their sense of smell, even though they didn't really develop any other symptoms. And again, studies from China suggest that there are significant rates of transmission within hospitals. We need our healthcare workers to be at work. We can't afford for them all to self-isolate. But equally, it's really important that we don't work while we're infected and at risk of passing that on to colleagues and patients. So this might allow us to identify healthcare workers that need targeted testing and then who should be off work until they're clear. Claire Hopkins, thank you very much. Pleasure. Thanks for your time. You can read more of our coverage of COVID-19 in The Economist, and you can subscribe by going to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. One of the most worrying symptoms of COVID-19 is the way that the coronavirus attacks people's lungs. For some patients in intensive care, this means relying on a ventilator to help with their breathing until their lungs can recover. But there are nowhere near enough of these machines to meet the demand caused by the global pandemic. Ventilator manufacturers are working flat out and getting car makers, aerospace firms and other companies to help out. But it's still not enough. Paul Markley is The Economist's innovation editor. Hope is riding on scores of new projects that are developing breathing devices that could be manufactured rapidly by other companies and small workshops. So let's start with the basics. How do ventilators actually work? Well, what they do is force air into your lungs, uh, including a mixture of oxygen if you need that as well. And that can be done in different ways with different levels of machine. Uh, The most sophisticated do all sorts of things. They can monitor not only the amount of air that's going in and out and the level of oxygen, but they can also encourage the patient to breathe on their own. And it's mechanical ventilation. And the air itself, could be on a mask or it could be on a tube down the throat or even through an incision in the patient's neck. Now, are these devices expensive? Well, they can cost up to $50,000 for the most sophisticated, some much less than that. But they're quite expensive bits of kit, especially if they have to work in a medical environment. They have to be highly reliable. They need not to break down. And they also need to be built very, very well. Now, amid the crisis, we've heard examples of doctors using ventilators for more than one patient. Is that possible? How does that work? It's possible, and people have written papers about it, but uh, it's not recommended by the manufacturers of ventilators. And the reason for that is that everybody is different, and everybody needs different levels of air and different levels of oxygen and different other settings that are being made. But of course, if there's a crisis, you do what you can. Okay. How serious is the shortage of ventilators around the world? Well, very. There simply aren't enough to go around, and they'll 
probably still won't be enough to go around. In America, for instance, even if you sort of take a sort of a medium estimate of the number of people that are likely to require intensive care, you're looking at six patients for every single machine and there could be signal figures elsewhere and of course in some countries um, you could probably count the number of ventilators available in a hospital on one hand. Now the good news is that scientists and companies are coming together to try and solve this What are the existing ventilator manufacturers doing? Well, they're working flat out. Some are enlisting the help of other companies to make parts for them, including car makers and aerospace companies and other engineering firms. And they're also going to 24-hour operation, shifting people out of the office onto the production floor and doing everything they can. In Italy, one company that makes ventilators has got the army coming in, the army technicians helping them out. So during wartime, companies that made one thing usually spin on a dime and make something else. So how sophisticated are these machines and can we actually see industry snap into action? Can a car maker become a ventilator maker? Can a industrial parts maker for factories become a ventilator maker or at least make the parts for a ventilator? Well, indeed. I mean, in the, during the Second World War in Britain, you saw factories turn to making Spitfires. But medical devices are a bit different. There has been, though, a big call for arms and lots of companies and academics and researchers and doctors are getting together. And there's various groups working on things. And it's coming in different ways. I mean, one is that you could help the existing manufacturers out or you could take some of their designs and help make them. Or indeed, you could simplify some of those designs and try to make um, ventilators that maybe don't have the same features as the most sophisticated machines, but they do have the basic ones. And we're seeing that happening. A group in Oxford and London have a very simple machine that um, I've seen being demonstrated, and they're hopeful they'll actually have that on trial in hospitals within a couple of weeks. Interesting. And so the innovation around ventilators is basically creating a low-cost, simple device that still works. Is that it? That's right. I mean, there are hand-pumped resuscitators, which people are trying to mechanise. But you need to do that carefully. And these things need to be met with some caution by hospitals and health authorities, obviously, because, you know, they want to make sure these things are safe and reliable and that they don't break down. And so companies with some knowledge of the medical industry and how to make things for that industry and sort of trusted high-tech companies, you know, might get some fast-track approval on some of this equipment. That does seem likely. Now, what about the idea of open source designs? Is that really a thing? Oh, yeah, there's lots of people out there who are tinkering away in their garages or research groups that are coming out with bits and pieces and making things on 3D printers and taking all sorts of things and putting together what you might call rather crude but working ventilators. Uh, one in Spain uses a windscreen wiper motor from a car to squeeze a bag which pumps air. Now, it seems a bit simple, but it actually would work. The problem is, though, it's not a medical device, and even they say this could be very dangerous and we don't recommend using it but if you've got nothing else people might so what is the most promising approach should current ventilator makers open source their own design so that people can innovate on it without intellectual property infringement or should we encourage these bottom-up efforts and hope that one of them comes up with something that could be used in a hospital 
I think you need both and you will see both. I mean, some ventilator manufacturers are saying, for instance, Smith's Group in Britain are saying, you know, we have a portable machine. Um, some other companies might be able to help us make this. But that takes a bit of time to scale up and sort out supply chains and everything else. And that's a fairly sophisticated device, even though it's just a portable one. On the other hand, something that could be put together from readily made components and using things that are already accepted by the medical establishment if you could do that and do that fast enough the machine may be basic but if it's well made it's reliable and trusted that could help as well and then it depends you know again you need both types of machine because the simple basic ones could help free up the more sophisticated machines for people that have more complex problems and need more help with their breathing paul thank you very much it's a pleasure ken The COVID-19 pandemic is bringing immense uncertainty to citizens, governments, and the global economy. Economist Radio is drawing on the expertise of our international network of correspondents to report on the crisis. On the science... The more you understand about the mechanism of a virus, the more places that there are that you can glue it up. On the economics... The banks are in a really interesting position for this crisis because last time they were maybe the cause of turmoil and this time they could be one of the arms through which the impact of the crisis is dulled. And on the politics of COVID-19. Some worst case scenarios have a very large number of people dying. That is going to trigger very, very grave conversations about whose fault this is. For the latest on the pandemic and more, join us on Economist Radio. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. And finally, governments around the world have called on citizens to self-isolate and stay at home as much as possible. In doing so, people have dramatically changed their everyday habits. People are flying less, they're not commuting to work, and as a result of that, we're seeing a drop in air pollutants and carbon emissions. Katrine Brahek is The Economist Environment Editor. On top of that, businesses and factories are shutting down around the world, and that's also resulting in a massive decline in emissions. Exactly how much are emissions going down? The data that first came out was actually from China, and it was for nitrogen dioxide, which is an air pollutant produced when fossil fuels are burnt. And over the first few months of this year, satellite data recorded a remarkable drop-off in levels of NO2 above China. Since then, we've seen the same sort of pattern repeat itself as these lockdowns spread around the world as following the virus. So we've seen a drop in NO2 over Italy, a similar pattern over South Korea, for instance. And there's other pollutants that are being monitored as well in New York, where again, lockdowns have been enforced, people are not commuting, there aren't cars on the roads, we're seeing less carbon monoxide and less NO2 as well. And so what about greenhouse gases? 
So obviously greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide are also produced when fossil fuels are burnt. So these air pollutants, which are harmful to human health, are kind of an indicator of the greenhouse gas emissions, which are more harmful to the environment. And so in China, the estimates are that in the first two weeks of February of this year, CO2 emissions were 25% down on where they were for the same period last year. And in New York, we've just had estimates come out that CO2 levels are 8 to 10% lower in period in March compared to the same period last year. So do you think this is a short-term effect or will there be any lasting impacts? I think it's really difficult to say at this point. There will absolutely be a short-term drop in CO2 emissions in 2020. We saw this pattern during the last global financial crisis. It was quite remarkable. But the thing to note is that after the global financial crisis in 2008, CO2 emissions quickly rebounded. So by 2010, they were back up and in fact growing faster than they had before the recession. So in that respect, I think the expectation is that we're going to see a short-term blip. There's the possibility that the pandemic could sort of create secondary effects that would, in a sense, extend these drops in emissions. But that's very speculative at this point. And if I'm honest, I don't have much hope for that. But what would those secondary effects be? There's things like low oil prices currently are really hurting shale oil companies in the US. So could it spell the end of shale oil, which would mean a portion of fossil fuels stays underground? There's the hope that as that's happening, renewables will continue to grow. And so you might see the sort of switch towards a more low carbon energy supply. The problem is there's caveats for all of these. So, for instance, on renewables, in fact, an analysis that was just published this last week suggests that as governments focus their attention on the pandemic, they're less likely to be pushing forward these policies that they were meant to be pushing forward, promoting renewables. And and so Bloomberg NEF is actually predicting that new solar will not be as strong in 2020 as it would otherwise have been. So solar energy, for instance, might in fact end up taking a hit. And what about the big UN climate meeting, COP26 this year? Yeah, so that's also an open question at the minute. The world's governments are meant to meet in Glasgow in November this year for a massive climate summit, which really is probably the most important climate summit since Paris in 2012. And nobody really knows now whether that summit is going to be able to go ahead. There are rumours that ministers and officials are discussing contingency plans for holding it in the early months of 2021. I'm told they really don't want to have to do that. But the other thing that's clear is that you don't just show up for a climate summit like that the day before. There's an entire year's worth of homework that goes into it. And already the British government was getting criticism for not having done enough of that homework. And this is definitely going to slow that process down. So I think there is legitimate concern over what can be achieved in Glasgow at this point. And counter to that concern that by pushing it into 
2021, that could further take the wind out of its sails. It seems kind of intuitive that emissions should be reduced because global economic activity is being reduced. But what you're saying is that a fallout from the COVID crisis may be that emissions actually go up because we won't be spending as much on renewables and because we're all not going to the COP26 meeting to sort of discuss how we can address climate change more broadly. Yeah, so the first big unknown is how long this goes on for, which obviously has an impact on emissions. The second big unknown is how governments respond. Um, There's already talk of bailouts and stimulus packages, and the makeup of those efforts to boost the economy could potentially be decisive for emissions. So if governments decide to bail out heavy industries and really boost construction, for instance, energy intensive sectors, like they did particularly in China after the last global financial crisis, then I think we will definitely see an uptick in emissions. And yes, the the net result could in fact be that emissions start growing faster than they were before. Do you think there are any lessons that we can learn from our reaction to the COVID crisis that will help mitigate the climate crisis? One thing that appears to manifest in the global response to COVID is this sort of potential for governments to come together and at least coordinate the responses to a, to a massive global crisis that doesn't respect borders. And there are parallels there with what's needed in the climate crisis. But I think the two situations are really extremely different. And one of the challenges of tackling climate change has always been that it's difficult today to see the magnitude of the crisis that we're trying to avert 10, 20, 30 years down the line. So I think it's quite tricky, actually, to try to apply that lesson. And then the other difference, really, is that what governments are putting in place now are crisis measures that nobody wants to sustain in the long term. And what you need for the climate crisis is a transformation of society and our way of life, which does in fact appeal to the global population because we need those changes to last. So I think while it's very tempting to draw parallels, if you start to think about it, it's not that simple. Katrine Brahek, thank you very much. Thank you, Ken. And thank you for listening to Babbage. And while you're with us, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It does make a difference and allows more people to find the show. I'm Kenneth Kukier, and in West London, self-isolating like the rest of us, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. 
Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.